What a privilege it is for us to gather together in such a time as this, in the days in which we live. Such a privilege for me, a daunting task really, to think about preaching and the time of preaching in which we are in and the realities of that, not only before men, but before God, that God will hold accountable every word spoken from the mouth. And so when we gather together in these times, it is a frightful, reverentially frightful opportunity for us to gather before God. I hope you see it that way. I hope you see it as an opportunity that your life before God being lived out and your Christianity is seen as a priority to gather with God's people that God might be honored through your giftedness and your interactions with the people of God as you spend time together. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I was thinking about it this morning as I was just meditating on our time together and thinking about the New Testament together and realizing that the Apostle Paul and Luke, his traveling companion for much of his missionary journeys, wrote about 50% of the New Testament as we have it. That's a surprising reality when you think about it. And so here is Luke writing to us, Luke chapter 3. We are continuing our study through this wonderful gospel, and we come this morning to chapter 3 in the ministry of what I have entitled for us as the last Old Testament prophet whose name is John. You may sometimes not think of him like that as an Old Testament prophet because he's in the New Testament as we know it, and yet these are still Old Testament times that are being written about. Jesus is on the scene, yes, he's already been born, and yet his ministry is yet to be started. And Jesus certainly hasn't died and risen again, and that's really the beginning of the New Testament church, or the New Testament really is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so in reality, in a historical sense, we're still here in an Old Testament uh, history. And we know him here in John chapter 3, or in Luke chapter 3, as John the Baptist, not because he was a Baptist, as many people might try to think, but he simply because of his message and his ministry is labeled that way by us here. He was really John the Baptizer, as we will see. Let me read for us this section of Scripture, and I want to read down to verse 20. Uh, just to kind of lay the whole context of the ministry of John, this is really, in many ways, the, 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 the largest section of the ministry of John that we get. We see snippets of him from the other Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, but, but really this is the largest portion that we find in the Gospels themselves about John the Baptizer. Beginning in verse 1, now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Tronconitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from those stones to raise up children to Abraham. 
And also, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch had repro was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's go before the Lord in prayer before we begin our time in this text. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have given us exactly what you have desired for us to hear, to know, that we might learn of you, that we might learn of the truth which you have here being spoken through Luke as he recounts the ministry of John. We thank you that we can glean from it, even though we are separated for such a length of time that we can learn from it even though our circumstances may be different and even though the context of our own living situation was different from His, we can learn from it about You and about the truth of the Gospel. So we ask You to bless our time, bless Your name, convict our lives and help us to see that conviction as a grace that we might change and be changed into Christ-likeness for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It had been nearly 400 years since the nation of Israel had had a prophet of God speak to them. The silence from God was deafening. The days in which this text would have been written and the context around which Luke is writing for John's life was spiritually dark. There were many who were wondering when the promises that God had made through Moses and through the prophets, when the prophecies concerning the Messiah would actually be fulfilled. And then, of course, in our study, seemingly from out of nowhere, God breaks into the silence by dispatching an angel. The angel Gabriel came to speak to a priest about what he and his wife would be part of accomplishing through the plan of God. He told this priest that his prayers had been heard that he would indeed have a son, that he and his wife, even in their aged years, would bear a child, and many would rejoice at his birth. 
In fact, the text in the previous chapter said it this way, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, we know from our own study and from reading the text itself that nine months later, Zacharias and Elizabeth did have a son, just as God had declared that they would. And for the next 30 years, the lives of themselves, the lives of this son, and the lives of his cousin, Jesus, would be lived out in relative obscurity. We don't have a lot in the text that tells us about those intervening years between the time John was born, between the time Jesus was born, and when we find them beginning ministry. We learned a little bit about Jesus' intervening years, at least one part of that last Lord's Day when we looked at his life around the Passover feast, just about the time when he was about to become a son of the covenant, a son of the law, when he was found in the temple by his parents, proclaiming just what he had said, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Chapter 2, verse 49. All we know of Zacharias and Elizabeth's son is the name, the name that they gave him, that they were commanded to give him, and that he leapt in the mother's womb as he heard the voice of his cousin's mother, Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, as she came into the room, John, being in his own mother's womb, leapt inside of his mother and was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. We also know a bit about how he lived, at least during those intervening years, because the words of Gabriel in chapter 1 and verse 80 tell us a little bit. It says, and he, the child, continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Lived in the desert. It was in those intervening years as God was growing him physically and growing him strong in the spirit that God would have built into the life of John the convictions and the courage to live out all that God had prepared for him even in the face of tyrannical leadership in which he spoke to and yet subsequently had him killed. And it is with those simple few words that Luke prepares us for the appearing of John the Baptist on the scene. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John is, in fact, a prophet in the truest sense of the word because Luke identifies him here in this text in verse 2 by saying, the word of God came to John. That is the phrase that encapsulates this entire text. That is a phrase that encapsulates everything that we will see in the outworking of the narrative here as Luke unfolds the beginning ministry of John the Baptist. It is only to be followed, actually, by another encapsulating word, and phrase which speaks of the outcome of receiving the Word of God. And that is, in verse 3, he went around preaching. He went around preaching. So when John speaks, the text is telling us this is God speaking. It's God saying through John, what God desired to say. When John makes a declaration, it is God's declaration. 
when John declares the command, which is the driving command of this entire text, and that is to repent. When John says to repent, this is God declaring repentance. When John pronounces judgment, it is not John's judgment. It is not John bringing judgment. It is the consequential judgment of God that he is pronouncing. So this, beloved, is the revelation of God through God's chosen mouthpiece, speaking God's words so that the people will be prepared to meet God the Messiah. It ought to be quite clear to us from what we have learned thus far, at least in our study of the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is less concerned with the date of Jesus' birth than he is with the political and religious timing of the one who precedes Jesus in ministry. I find it interesting that any time our own country is going to send a high-ranking government official to another country, and they're going on behalf of this country in a state visit to visit another country. When our president goes to another country on a state visit, our country sends ahead of our president an entire cohort of individuals, an entire team of people that by way of both security and otherwise in order to prepare the way for the future arrival of whatever state official it is, and oftentimes it's the president. The Secret Service go well in advance in order to prepare the way to make sure everything is secure, making sure that all things are put in place so that the welcoming country is rightly prepared to receive the dignitary that is coming. And in like manner, and yet with infinitely greater significance, God Himself, through John, is preparing the way for the coming and for the revealing of His Messiah to the world and to call them to the most important thing that could, they could ever be called to because there is no salvation without it, and that is repentance. Repentance is necessary for salvation. There are some within evangelicalism that try to say that is not true. You, you don't really need to repent. You just need to have this intellectual faith upon God. I mean, you can believe in God. And since if you believe in God, then you're heading to the same place that everyone is going who believes in God. There is no need for repentance. And yet God here is preaching through John repentance. Therefore, Luke, being the precise historian that he is, sets the stage so that we understand fully the darkness upon which this light is coming. The timing of John's arrival on the scene is fascinating. Notice in verses 1 and 2, we are told of the political environment and the religious environment taking place at the time. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Tronconitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. In the wilderness. Just upon reading that in our own understanding, if you don't know a little bit about the history of what is going on, you don't, you don't really understand and see what's happening, but it is a dark, dark time in Israel. No better backdrop, really, for the bright light to shine than on the spiritual darkness and the political darkness that had engulfed humanity during the days in which Luke writes about here. Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. 
Tiberius Caesar was the stepson of Augustus Caesar. He ruled with Augustus Caesar really conjointly for a few years until Augustus died in 14 AD. Most historians seem to think that Tiberius Caesar ruled with Augustus just so Augustus would have this perpetuation of the thronehood in his own family. And he probably began to conjointly rule with Augustus around 11 AD. So he ruled for about three years conjointly with Augustus until Augustus died. These were wicked, wicked men. They were wicked men, as most of the hundred plus Caesars in Rome's rule over its years of rulership over the world. All of the Caesars were really wicked men, some worse than others, but these were wicked men. And many historians tell us that their cruelty could be unmatched, really. And so if you... If you add this 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign to the time when he began to reign, it was about 26 AD when Tiberius was ruling, and Luke is writing this when John begins his ministry. It's been 26 AD, and of course, 10 years into that, or along the same time, Luke includes here another name that we notice and recognize, at least from our studies of both John and Mark, and that is the name Pontius Pilate. He says in verse 1, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, he ruled as governor for about 10 years, and he was removed from his governorship. He was deposed from that in 36 AD. So if he ruled for about 10 years, he was ruling at the same time, 26 AD. And so he too begins his ministry or his rulership around the same time. And then Luke, you notice, mentions three tetrarchs. Three tetrarchs, one named Herod, one named Philip, and one named Licinius. And all of these were were sons. A tetrarch was was a person who had a rulership of what was known as a quarter of a region. A quarter of a region. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his rulership was divided among his sons. These are three of them. One was deposed. He was removed in 6 AD. Mostly, most of those who who were going to be a threat in some kind of way, were even killed, or they were promoted to some other place in order to keep the power in the family. But only these three are mentioned here because the one who was removed in 6 AD. You notice he says, and Herod was a tetrarch in Galilee. That Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas ruled a partial region of Galilee until 39 AD, and then Philip ruled his part until 33 or 34 AD, which was Iteria and Tronconitis, which are parts of the same region located to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, Licinius was another son who ruled over Abilene. That's not Abilene, Texas. That is Abilene in the region northwest of actually Damascus is where that is. Well, when Licinius died... His area was combined with Philip's, and all of that area became the future rulership of King Agrippa I and King Agrippa II. And you can read about King Agrippa because Paul gives a testimony before King Agrippa in Acts, right? You read about the King Agrippa the first one in Acts 12, and then the second one in Acts chapter 25. So all of this political circumstance is going on, all of this dark time, rulers all over the place, people vying for power, wickedness is running rampant, and John arrives on the scene. You would think that the 
climate of the world or the climate of the culture needs to be one in which things are going well for people to be softened to the things of God, for people to be prepared to hear the gospel and to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet here we get an example of just the time that God chooses to have his gospel come into a place, and it's normally in the darkest of hours. I find that very encouraging, particularly in the days in which we live. We think sometimes, well, the world is attacking evangelicalism. The world is attacking preachers of the gospel. I mean, the country just north of us is is closing down things that, that... that years ago we would never thought of to be to be attacked and and these kinds of things and people are arguing about whether they can pray in schools and all this stuff is going on where's the gospel listen this is the time for the gospel there is no better time for the gospel than now we cannot cower we cannot sit back and just relax and not say anything we must stand up and say what needs to be said we must tell people there is hope you don't have to worry you don't have to fret you don't have to run around like like things are out of control god is still in control and we have been given the gospel it was a dark time Israel is under multi-layered, cruel rule. It's affected every area of life, even and especially their spiritual life. You notice in verse 2, it is in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now I want to I point out something here that may not be clear from our English Bibles. Notice that Luke uses the singular use of the word priesthood. Sometimes that's known as a collective singular. A collective singular. In other words, it's a word in the singular, but it encompasses the plural. It's talking about the plural. And and if we think of it in a plural sense here, we're going to get it wrong. It is a singular sense here in the high priesthood, not high priesthoods of Annas and Caiaphas. In other words, there is no dual high priest. That's not what Luke is trying to say. According to Mosaic law, that was impossible. He isn't saying that there are two actual high priests at one time going on in Israel. John didn't come on the scene when there were two high priests serving and everybody was fine with having two high priests. That would have never happened under the direction of how God had set up the priesthood. Under God's design, there was only one high priest at a time, and that high priest was the high priest for life. So why does Luke say then, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Why does he list two names here? Well, first of all, just like in the political environment, Annas and Caiaphas were related. Caiaphas was, in fact, the son-in-law of Annas. But that's not why Luke is listing it here in this way. The reason that Luke lists it in this way is to give us a glimpse into the spiritual climate that's going on when John came on the scene. Because while the Jews held the high priest was a position for life, when the Jews of the synagogue would have thought about the high priest, that's how they would have thought about it. They have the position for for life. And yet the Romans did not see it that way. The Romans used it as a political position so that they could garner some kind of more mutually uh, easy, if you will, control of the Jews. Under Roman rule, it it was a political position. They used it to control the the leverage, if you will, with the Jews. So after Annas had served as high priest for nearly 20 years, He was deposed. He was removed by the Roman government. He was taken out of that place and replaced by others that had come after him that the Romans put in place 
numerous ones in succession after him. And after several years uh, and several others had been put in the office of high priest Annas, still having a great deal of influence over the people because the people liked Annas. They knew he was the high priest. He was able to still have one last say and that would be that his son-in-law was to be put in place as high priest. And of course, the Romans did this in order to bring some kind of peaceful appeasing to the Jews, because many of the Jews, as I said, still considered Annas as the high priest. And so if they appointed his son-in-law as high priest, that might appease them. The sad part about the whole thing is that they were both, no matter whether one was appointed as high priest under the Mosaic law and there for life, i.e. Annas, and whether Caiaphas was put in there because he was to appease the the Jews and under Annas be the son-in-law, so there was still that tie, they were both still puppets of the Roman government. And suited their ends. And so Luke here in verse 2 includes all of that so that we know the conditions surrounding the exact timing of John's ministry. This is what's going on politically. This is what's going on spiritually. It is a dark, dark time. And of course, many of the names we know from the ministry of Jesus, especially when we get to his trial. Pontius Pilate is there in the trial. Of course, Herod is brought into the scene when Pontius Pilate sends Jesus up to, to go and see what what Herod will say about it, and then he sent back to Pontius Pilate, and then, of course, Caiaphas and Annas are the high priests during that time. Jesus first goes before them, before he's ever sent even to the Romans. So it's politically dark, it's religiously dark, and in many ways it was geographically dark. Verse 2 says, The word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness in the wilderness. The wilderness was a barren, desolate place. It was a place where few people lived ever. Now, why? Why does John say here in verse 2, he's the son of Zacharias? Why is Zacharias named? Why is Zacharias? Remember, remember Luke's writing to his friend the, um in the beginning, right, he's, he's writing to uh, Theophilus about all of this. And he's, he's telling him, I want you to know the exact truth. And he, and he begins with the story of how John the Baptist is born, right? Herod's king in Judea, right? And to the north, he's the Tetrarch. He's the king, Herod the Great. And so here is... Luke, including Zacharias here, but why? I think it's simple, simply just for us to rightly identify just who John is. Just who this John is, right? He's the son of Zacharias. This isn't some other John who has come on the scene. This is the very one that we spoke about earlier. This is the John who grew up in the desert. This is he who is in the wilderness. That's where he lives. And he was called to ministry the same way any prophet of God was called to ministry. The word of God came to John. When the word of God came to him, he began to do what prophets do. He began to proclaim it to the people. The word of God came to John, and he began to preach. So this is the divine revelation from God. Divine revelation from God. By the way, by the way, it says here in verse 2, the Word of God came to John. There are two original terms in the original language, Greek language, used for translating the, into English and using the word, word. So when it says the Word of God came to John, one of two words could be used there as being translated as word. One is the word logos, logos. The other is rhema, rhema. 
Logos and Rhema. The word used here is Rhema. It is not Logos. Rhema is, in its simplest term, in its simplest meaning, means utterance. The utterance. Logos, if it was translated as the word Logos, Logos carries the idea of more of the contents of the word spoken rather than the utterance of the word itself. It's a translation, really, of the Old Testament word Debar, uh, and you can see that Jeremiah, when he is called to ministry, that word is used in calling him to ministry. Ramah, if you were to translate the Old Testament into the Septuagint, you get the word Ramah there in Jeremiah 1.1. So he's called the same way. So God said something to John. God made an utterance to John, and we get some idea of what he said from what John goes about saying. So John is under the direct and uh, under the direction and he's under the interaction of God. So I guess if you wanted to encapsulate, at least in some kind of outline here, these first couple verses, it is the revelation of God. That's the backdrop in verses one and two. The revelation of God comes to John under this political environment, under this spiritual environment that is happening, this dark time. And now let's, and then you get the, the, the pronouncement, right? God, John gets this revelation. Now I want to look at the proclamation. So you have the revelation. Now the proclamation. The proclamation, verses 3 through 6. He came into the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be become straight, and the rough road smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God." So we are introduced here to the ministry of the forerunner of Jesus with one profound sentence. One profound sentence. And really this sentence begins in verse 3 and doesn't end till verse 6. But the essence of what John is preaching is found in verse 3 and in verse 6. He came into the district around the Jordan preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is the encapsulation of, verse 6, the salvation of God. This is the gospel. John is preaching the gospel. John's message is a message of the reality of the need for repentance, which brings about the forgiveness of sins. Listen, there is no salvation without repentance and forgiveness. Let me say that again. There is no salvation without repentance and forgiveness. John's message is God's message. John's message is, repent of your sin, and you will have forgiveness. He is not preaching a message that says, if you are baptized, then you will be forgiven. He is not saying that. Even though the people begin to internalize it that way, and begin to think about it that way, as you can see in verse 7, we'll look, talk, talk about this next time, but verse 7, therefore, he began saying to the multitudes who are going out to him to be baptized by him, why are you coming? Who warned you to flee the, fat, the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits keeping with repentance. You see, they were going out to try to accomplish another religious reality. They were going out to be baptized, and he was challenging them with that kind of thinking. In fact, the grammar indicates to us that the baptism that John is speaking about is something that actually follows a person's genuine repentance. 
It is an activity for sure. It is an activity that follows genuine repentance. Notice in verse 16, when the people were wondering about him, whether he might be the Messiah, he said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water. I baptize you with water. I I come to you and I'm preaching this this message of repentance, this message of of God wrought forgiveness in your life through repentance of your sin, and therefore, because of that, I baptize you. It's the outward reality of this baptism with water. But notice this, one is coming who is mightier than I, who I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's that's with the living influx of of God the Spirit, as Jesus would promise in His ministry, that once He left, the Spirit would come, and with fire. That's the equation of judgment. Those are the only two options. Either life in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit as He indwells you through, through repentance and you have forgiveness of sin, or there is judgment. There is no middle ground. And so John is preaching repentance. Repentance whereby which baptism is the outward sign of the genuineness of that repentance in the heart. He's calling the people to turn from their sin. To follow through with being baptized by Him as an indication that they have truly repented. I find it I find it very interesting as a preacher, someone who stands up each Lord's Day proclaiming the Word of God and desiring the people of God to hear the Word of God in their hearts and for God to grow people spiritually and to grow some places numerically so that more people hear the Word of God, that John was not ever interested in building some kind of ministry. First of all, he was in the wilderness. No one went out to the wilderness other than to be called by God because it wasn't a place of a thriving metropolis. It wasn't the busiest intersection in the city. And he said, I think I'll start preaching there. He didn't do that. He went where God called him to go. He went to the wilderness and he began to preach repentance. And when the people came, he said, wait a minute, you brood of vipers. That's not a a very kind message. Hey, you bunch of snakes. Why did I come to hear this guy? That's not very encouraging. It's not very helpful for me. I came to hear good words. I came to hear words that might lift me up, that might help me with my daily life, that might feed my, my desires and my own wantings. And so, hey, let's go out and hear John. He's a pretty popular preacher. Let's go hear this guy. Let's flock to him. People were flocking to him. And he says, you brood of iron, you bunch of snakes. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? John heard from God. John preached what he heard. So he, with clarity and without any alteration, announced the Word of God. And it was a command to repent and be forgiven. And he did it in the wilderness. God didn't send John into the center of some metropolis. He didn't send Gabriel dispatched to his parents prior to his birth to give Gabriel's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, instructions on how to they could instruct their son on how to manufacture and build some successful ministry so that he could have the maximum amount of people who would be affected by whatever ministry he was building because this is your best life now. He didn't try the latest techniques for drawing a crowd so that he might win some. Hey, just just soften the message a bit. Just just cool it down a little bit. Because don't you want to just attract people to yourself? I mean, you need to cool it so that people will come to you. And then maybe you can interject here and there, kind of in a secret way, some things about Jesus. And some people might come to know Him. No. No, John, John was sent by God into the wilderness. In fact, it's a place known as the Great Depression. Geographically speaking, the Great Depression. Why? Because it was the Jordan Valley and the surrounding area of the Jordan Valley. 
a desolate place. It was hot, mostly uninhabited. It was the depression which was wild and removed from civilization. But it was a region in which God had called John to preach. Why? Why? Well, we can't be sure exactly. The text doesn't tell us exactly, but I think partly we could surmise it was to remove the people from the interests of their day-to-day. They had to go away from their day-to-day lives to hear John. They had to get their minds and their their interests and their hearts fixed upon the spiritual condition of themselves before a holy God. Get them to the place whereby they realized and understood their need to repent. John came as a voice making ready the way of the Lord. He was that entourage sent ahead of the dignitary to prepare the way so that when the dignitary comes, the people are ready to hear, to receive. So John preached and the people came. The message they heard was a message of repentance. The message they heard was a message that, hey, listen, you're in a wrong standing with God because of your own sin. You're in a place in which you are under the judgment, under the wrath of God. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? See, you're under the wrath of God and you need to understand you're under the wrath of God. It isn't a governmental problem. It isn't a a logistical problem with, with how the government is running. It isn't even the bad priests who are in the spiritual realm. The problem is an individual problem and it is with your heart. The Hebrew word is nakam. The Greek word is metanoia. Metanoia means to change the mind, to turn or be converted. It's repentance. The verb meant to perceive or to, to see afterward. In other words, to see when it's too late, or to see it too late. In other words, to see afterward, to regret it. To regret it. So in a spiritual sense, repentance means to see your sin for what it is, and to turn from it. To see your sin as an offense to a holy God, to see who you are in your own personhood as an offense to a holy God, and because you're an offense to a holy God, you turn from that to God. It's a change in heart. It's an internal change, not an external change. That's why John said what he said. Bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, verse 8 says. It's a turning of the real you. It's it's a turning from sin, from the guilt of your own sin, from, from what you have caused, the offense before God, to the cleansing forgiveness of God's grace that is found only in the mercy that is given through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we could conclude that repentance always is accompanied by faith. There There are two sides of one coin in the doctrine of salvation. Repentance and faith are always coexisting. John preached and many repented of their sin and asked to be baptized. I said earlier, some within evangelicalism have asserted that while John is preaching repentance, they acknowledge that, yes, John is preaching repentance, They try to say, some within evangelicalism, even some who are out there in preaching pulpits even this very day, say he's not preaching faith in Jesus, however. In other words, there is repentance, yes, but but faith doesn't have to accompany that. I would simply say that the Apostle John's gospel clearly says, about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist came as a witness to the light so that all men might believe through him. Belief is faith. Faith is the response of a truly repentant heart. 
And a repentant heart desires to reflect that reality, to reflect the truality of its trueness in repentance, in obedience to Christ in every way, and that includes baptism. Therefore, baptism is essential, not in order to save, but as the outworking of being saved. That also says that there is no power in baptism to save. There is no power in baptism to save anyone. Baptism does not save, and there is no forgiveness of sin without genuine repentance. Now, we need to be clear here. We want to make sure our understanding is clear. We want to make sure what we're saying is clear on this point. Repentance, repentance, listen to me carefully, repentance cannot make atonement for sin. Let me say that again. Repentance cannot make atonement for sin. In other words... It is not the act of repenting that covers our sin. Remember, atonement is the covering for our sin. It's the satisfaction. It's the payment for our sin. Repentance is not the covering for our sin. It is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin. That's what makes atonement for our sin. We're not accounted righteous before God by the act of repentance. We have to understand that. No quantity of repentance, no quantity of repentance will ever be able to justify us before God. We cannot each and every day go, well, I repented today, I repented today, I repented today, and therefore because I continue to repent, I'm justified before God. No. A person is justified before God by means of God's declaration through the sacrifice of Christ in which you and I as repentant sinners also believe upon Jesus for salvation. It is Jesus Christ that saves. Repentance does not save our souls. But true repentance is always accompanied by genuine faith in the one who does save our souls. Jesus Christ. We turn from sin to Christ. The unrepentant reject Christ. Always. The repentant embrace Christ. So the first thing that we must know in order to repent is we must know our sin. We must turn from it. This is why I think Luke writes in such a way and adds the the context in verses 1 and 2 as to the dark reality of the time in which these people were living because they thought the problem with their time was what was going on around them. The Roman government that they were under. They thought that was the problem. Even the disciples, when Jesus comes on the ministry, even the disciples being led by Jesus before He dies and rises again, even them, they're, they're kind of... Mixed up about this. Jesus says to Peter, I, I'm, I have to go and die. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. They wanted a worldly king. This is a sign of the times. We have to know our sin to repent. Change our mind about it change our thinking about it, change our inner internal in, inner man about it. We have to see it as God sees it or we'll never enter the kingdom of God. Without repentance, no man shall see the kingdom of God. Repentance is not a work of ours to accomplish. Repentance is an act of God's grace alone. God grants us repentance that we exercise. God grants us faith that we exercise. There's all of God. But the fact still remains, even in that reality, that all who will be saved are always repentant sinners saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is the truth before us this very day. That is the truth that we need to hear. Have 
we repented? Have we repented? Do you see your sin for what it is? Do we see our sin as an offense against a holy God? Or just or just a stack of things that aren't as bad as the next person next to you. And since your pile isn't as big as their pile, you're going to be okay with God because after all, someone is worse than you. No, we have to repent. Have we run to Jesus? We run to Jesus to rescue us from the judgment to come. That's what's before us here. These are the things that we ought to have on our mind. The Word of God came to John, and John came preaching. The Word of God came to John, and John preached. We who are Christians here this morning ought to understand that principle and it ought to be at the forefront of our minds every day. The Word of God has come to us. We know Jesus Christ. We have the Word of God before us. And are we then going to K. Russo? Are we going to proclaim it to those around us? John came preaching repentance. It wasn't a false repentance. It wasn't a fake, sorry, I did that. It wasn't a, a shallowness of, of, yeah, today I'm going to look contrite and, and yeah, I'm sorry I got caught for my sin and, and boy, I'm going to, I'm going to say I believe in God, but the outworking of that has no fruit at all. It's not that. No, he came preaching repentance and true repentance, which shows in the validity of its genuineness by the outworking of baptism in the life of the one who has been forgiven. Now, I know there are those, even in amongst our very body, who say they believe upon Jesus Christ, and yet they've never been baptized. True, baptism does not save you. It does not add to a salvation. It is not as if you cannot be saved without being baptized. We all know the truth of the thief on the cross where Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And yet the reality is, by God's grace, that all of us have not died the day we believed, and therefore we are to exercise obedience to God through our faith in Jesus Christ by proclaiming Christ in the waters of baptism and saying, I have truly turned from my sin. Hold me accountable to that. Why was John called to do all this? Why was John called to do all this? Because God said this would happen. This is exactly what God said. God's word is always fulfilled. This is exactly what God said. This is what verses 4 to 6 tell us. It's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Why was John on the scene? Why did John grow up in the wilderness? Why was John the preacher like this? Why was John the forerunner of Jesus Christ? Why is John an example to us? Why is the gospel the same as John preached, as what we preach, as what the Word of God says? Why is that? Because that's what God said it would be. The voice of one crying in the wilderness heralding the truth. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough road smooth. Metaphorically, speaking of every man's heart, the pride of the heart will be humbled. The crookedness of the sinfulness of men will be made straight. All flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, here's what I want us to think about this morning as we just finish our time. Here's what I want to finish. Can each of us rightly proclaim this morning, I repent and I believe? You see, if we do that and yet 
there be no fruit of that in our lives, then we delude ourselves. We delude ourselves into thinking that our sins are forgiven. No matter how we may feel, no matter how that might resonate with our own selfish hearts, true repentance always bears fruit. Always. Always bears fruit. In fact, this is the very principle by which Jesus spoke about Matthew chapter 18. When a brother sins against a brother. Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he listens to you, it's just a description of repentance. He turns from his sin. He walks in obedience to God. You see, this is just an example to us that just because we know Jesus Christ by faith doesn't mean we are now free from sinning. We will sin against each other, and what we need to do when we do sin is repent of that sin, turn to obedience. Not in order to be saved again, because we can't do that. Christ has already saved us. We are secure in Christ. But as Christians, we are living a life of confession, what 1 John 1 says, right? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's, that's not an evangelistic verse. That's a Christian life verse. Jesus said, but if He does not listen to you, in other words, if He doesn't repent, then take a couple more with you so that when you interact about this, and I'm paraphrasing, when you interact, so by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Not the fact of the sinfulness of the original act, but the fact that there's no repentance taking place. Well, whether he repents or doesn't repent, those facts can be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Get it out there in a wider fashion. Because more people need to interact because this is a dangerous position for someone sinning to be in. And if he listens, if he refuses to even listen to the church, then you're to treat him as if he's not saved. We're not determining his salvation. We're not saying someone's saved or not saved. We're just treating them in such a way because the unrepentant are the ones who are not saved. If someone continues to be unrepentant in their sinfulness, they're saying some things are wrong with their relationship with God, and maybe it's even to the point whereby they are not saved. True repentance always bears fruit. Always bears fruit. Well, John's going to get into the practice of that, beginning in verse 7 and following. We've seen the revelation. We've seen the proclamation. Now we're going to see the reception. But you'll have to come back next time. Next time. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these words. Thoughtful for us in our own lives, even as Christians, as those who have been saved by faith, as we have repented of our sins, and yet the reality that we still sin. We still must repent every day. We must keep that account short. We must love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. Sin gets in the way, Lord. Help us to see it for what it is. Turn from it. Walk in obedience to you. Lord, there certainly and maybe even more among us who do not know Jesus Christ at all. Maybe they've played games for years. Maybe they've never embraced Christ. Maybe they've never heard of this from your word. We trust that their hearts would be challenged by these things. That it might stir in them even more questions to ask and even more so a heart whereby they see their sin as an offense to you. 
that they're not standing with a group before you, they're standing individually before you as a holy God, them a wretched sinner in need of your grace, and the only way to receive it is through your Son. So we pray that they would turn to Christ, embrace Jesus Christ by faith, stop believing the lies of the world, the lies of the heart, that say you're okay if you just are good, by your own definition, according to the way the world defines it. We must be like Christ. We can't do that on our own. All we can do is express trust in you, faith, trust ourselves to you for the forgiveness of sins and begin in obedience to you. And that begins in the waters of baptism. So thank you for these things. Thank you for convicting us where we need it. Lord, use it in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.